Well, good morning, friends, family. Good to be with you in person. And those of you who are still watching online somewhere in this world, cheers. Happy coffee to you, and uh, glad you're here. We are in the final, uh, ep the final episode. Wow. <laughs> we'll just... We'll just go with that. We're in the final episode of the Jesus Walk season, which has been an absolutely epic season. Am I right? And uh, that's so funny. Uh, and uh, the good news is that after um, today's message, there will be a Q&A. So people have been sending in questions. If you have questions even from today, which I hope you do. Today's, uh, I'm so excited about this. I have been so blessed just researching this. I can't wait to share it with you. And so if you have questions, please send them in. And Quincy and Jimmy and I will all be discussing that uh, on a live after party, which you can tune in live at noon Eastern Standard Time or anytime you'd like and uh, have, a, uh, have a listen in to that conversation and discussion about your fantastic questions through this series. Jesus Walks. Uh, this, we're gonna start in Matthew's gospel and this is Jesus Walks on Water, okay? And again, a lot of these uh, passages have kind of been these famous passages and we've been re-looking at them, asking God by his Holy Spirit to speak afresh to us about what it is that he has for us in this moment and the context in which we're in. And out of all of the ones, I feel like this one had the most to say to me in the season that I'm at, in the context that we are in in today's current world. So it's Matthew chapter 14. It's gonna be on the slides there if it's helpful to you or if you wanna turn in your Bibles. Matthew's gospel, chapter 14. And uh, let's read it together. <laughs> I feel like I, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had dismissed them, he went out on a mountainside to, by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. And when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and begin, beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. And then those who were in the boat worshiped him saying, truly, you are the son of God. All right, so this is like epic. I feel like a lot of us have heard a lot of things about Peter walking on water and like all of these sort of things. And when you actually think about some of the things that we're afraid of and some of the ways that we've thought about God, thought about ourselves and maybe thought about our relationship with God, I feel like this passage of scripture really reveals a lot of misconceptions, a lot of those fears, a lot of those concerns that we have, a lot of those things that maybe keep us at a distance or keep us afraid um, or keep us from moving towards what it is that God invites us to do. And I wanna have a look at some of those misconceptions that I feel like are present in this text that kind of reveal some instruction for us in this text. So let's look at misconceptions about God and us, number one. And here it is, just the supernatural God is scary. The supernatural God is scary. Now, 
This is an Old Testament concept. Now in the text, this is around verse 26, you know, when Jesus is walking on the water, the disciples are terrified thinking it's a ghost, right? And they're like terrified. And uh, if you were to even, Old Testament concept, even to see God, all of the supernatural things that happen in the scripture, when God does stuff that's outside of our natural order of things, in the natural order of the world, you know, anything that's supernatural is scary. It's scary because we don't understand it. It's scary because maybe we have perpetuated this myth that the supernatural God is going to be like, we're going to die. So all throughout scripture, even like the founder of the Jewish faith, Moses, remember he sees God face to face, which isn't supposed to be a thing. Remember all throughout the Old Testament, you'll, you'll hear this idea that like, we can't come close to God or else we'll be consumed, right? God will be consumed. We will not, that's why every time God comes close to humanity, he's always like, guys, don't be so scared. <laughs> don't be so, my actual intention is to have you come close, but I am not natural. I am supernatural. And so there is this kind of like fear of the supernatural. Moses, remember he met God face to face. And then the people were so scared of Moses's glowing face because he'd been in the presence of God that he used to have to cover his face, even though, you know, he's a, a human, but because he had sort of this essence of the supernatural on him, people were like afraid of him. So this is really interesting that supernatural, God's supernatural uh, uh, person is scary to us because we can't understand it, maybe because we can't control it, maybe because we've been conditioned somehow to think of supernatural things as scary. If you were to Google right now supernatural in your Google search, I bet you what would come out is all kinds of scary things all kinds of scary things and crazy things and outlandish things and maybe even like kind of scary in like a, an evil kind of a way, in a dark sort of a way. The supernatural seems to be dominated by really dark, scary, horrible things. And what I think is really cool and what I mean by misconceptions being revealed here is that the disciples' first initiation, the first reaction to the supernatural presentation of Jesus, this like, that's not normal, right? Somebody walking in the middle of a lake, that's not normal. It's still not normal unless you're in Canada as minus 30 below, then everybody can walk on water. But uh, I guarantee you that's not what's happening here. He's literally walking on water and they're terrified and they're afraid. And then you'll notice all throughout this text, the word immediately, immediately, immediately. Now that's a narrative tool. Of course, you'll know this. Suddenly this happened. It's to create some sense of like trying to connote the idea like this all happened in real life. And it was like really like, ah, and like intense. So you'll see immediately, 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 at least three times in this passage of scripture. I don't know if you noticed it, but when you read it again, notice it. It's, it's important. There's immediately Jesus says, guys, it's me. Don't be afraid. I think that's like one of my favorite. It's me, don't be afraid. It's me, don't be afraid. It's me, don't be afraid. It's Jesus. And Jesus is saying this because the way that we see God, even supernatural God, even Old Testament God that was so misunderstood and so uh, not, you know, people didn't draw close because of their fear of the supernatural. And even in today's world where we're afraid of the supernatural because it might be scary. It's Jesus that is the supernatural God. It's me, Jesus is the face of God. The invisible qualities of God are revealed in the person of Jesus. And so immediately he responds to their fear of the supernatural by his character, by his presence. It's me and you do not have to be afraid. So I was thinking, this is fascinating. If you are afraid of all things supernatural, you should actually be able to know the difference between supernatural Jesus and supernatural evil. 
right? Both are true. There are these over, you know, not natural, not normal, not within our capacity to understand things that are happening in the world. But when it's Jesus who is supernatural, it is the character of Jesus. He is loving, he is kind. Immediately he says, don't be afraid. It's not fear inducing. It's actually fear inviting, right? It's actually an invitation. Uh, it is uh, kind. If it is coercive, if it is um, power inducing, if it is critical, um, if it is controlling, you know, those are all the opposite characteristics of the person of Jesus. Jesus is inviting, not controlling. Jesus is loving, not fear inducing in terms of like controlling or possessive or, uh, and that's really fascinating. Even in supernatural things all throughout um, the scriptures, the devil possesses people. Jesus participates with them. And when you think about that, the supernatural power of God is invitational always. It's always partnering. It's always an invitation for people to come close and to be part of, never possessing people to do what they don't wanna do. That's a demonic power. So the supernatural power of God, it's revealing that we're afraid and this immediately Jesus saying, it's me, don't be afraid. And so when you encounter maybe some uh, more than natural things, maybe it's a, a ministry of healing, or maybe there is some sort of like sense of darkness or foreboding evil, and you need someone to come and they wanna pray. And you know, those things are actually, they happen all of the time. I remember being in a, it, visiting a brothel. I used to do brothel chaplaincy. And uh, I remember going into a brothel as a chaplain and introducing myself and, the, and, and this woman saying, what does a chaplain do? <laughs> and I remember saying, like just trying, to come up, well, a chaplain uh, is here to listen. Uh, maybe you just need a listening ear. Like maybe I can actually be a reference if you want like another job. Like maybe I can pray for you, you know? Like there's all sorts of things a chaplain could do. And she looks at me and she goes, a chaplain, a chaplain. She goes, oh, do you break curses? And I was like, yes, that is definitely on a list of chaplain responsibilities. I break curses, absolutely. As a matter of fact, I know the one who breaks every curse. His name's Jesus. Jesus has come to break every curse. And there is no question in my mind that you have been cursed, none. And she said, I have been cursed. A witch put a curse on me when I was 14 years old and I've never been able to shake this curse and I need someone to break the curse. I was like, let's do it. She goes, we can do it right here. I'm like, yes, we can do it right here. Right, the super God is at work in this world. The supernatural power of God is available to those of us who walk with Jesus. This is, you know, it doesn't have to be showy. It doesn't have to be demonstrative. It certainly shouldn't be controlling and it, should, it certainly shouldn't be possessive, but it should be invitational. It should be good news. This is me, it's Jesus, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of that curse. We can break that. Jesus is here. He is among us. Do you believe this? Do we believe this? And uh, anyway, she goes, okay, let's do it. And she, start, we, she starts getting ready and she's like, we're gonna do it right now. I'm just gonna pray to Jesus because he's the one that has the power to break all the curses. And that's what he came to do. And she goes, okay, let's do it. And then somebody else said, what are you doing? She goes, she's gonna break a curse off me. And she's like, really? Can I get in on this? Can I get it? And it turns out a lot of people need curses broken. Who knew? Right, but we actually ended up with this prayer time in this brothel and just, we all held hands and we all asked Jesus if he might, by his supernatural power, break the curse of evil, the curse of all kinds of things off of their lives, off of their hearts, off of their minds. And he can do that for us as well. The supernatural God is not scary because supernatural God is Jesus. Don't be afraid, guys, it's me, it's me. Here's another misconception that I think is revealed in the text 
we aren't gonna make it through the storm. This is in verse 32. And this is really important. In uh, Jewish believers' minds, the sea is a representative of all things chaos, uncontrollable. Um, so there's like this supernatural idea of the sea. That's why actually the Sea of Gal Galilee is often referred to as a sea. So a large body of water is considered to be this foreboding. And you might remember even in Genesis, the spirit of God hovers over the watery deep, right? So there's all this idea that the sea, anything that has to do with the sea in a biblical Jewish framework is this like chaos that cannot be controlled. Uh, just on a natural level, this is a boat with fishermen in it who for sure have lost friends at sea, right? The sea, the sea, there's this like healthy respect of the sovereign nature of the sea, this uncontrollable nature of the sea. So for Jesus to come on that place, you know, where the, the control of water is strictly God's domain, uh, for Jesus to come and, 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 and reveal his power over the sea, is a really big theological thing that's happening here. It's a very large revelation. So if you were paying attention to last week, which I don't blame you if you weren't, but if you were, you uh, would have heard about the raising of the dead widow's son. And at the end of that miracle, at the end of that, uh, that Jesus confrontation with death, um, you would think that would be a big enough deal to reveal that Jesus is God. But you might remember that the people after that miracle, the people say, Surely a great prophet is among us. That's the response of that miracle. After this miracle, the disciples say, surely you are the son of God. Isn't that interesting? So the raising of a dead widow's son, a great prophet is with us. Now, the reason that's the case is last week, that great prophet, the raising of the dead, has a lot of similarities to the prophet Elijah in the Old Testament, who also raised a widow's son and then presented that person back to their mother. So there is this sense in which Elijah's back here, the spirit of Elijah's back here. There's someone that's doing something that's really powerful, but nobody has demonstrated the kind of sovereignty that Jesus is demonstrating in this situation. And we think, I think, I think the tendency of our human capacity to be in places that we don't understand and we can't control that are outside of our, of our ability to predict uh, what's gonna happen um, is, well, you tell me, how are you feeling right now? Right, this, this season that we're in right now, I mean, there's hundreds of thousands of people in Ottawa right now who are just trying their best to, 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 to to say something, to speak something, to change something, to grab some sort of sense of control because this idea of being completely out of control, this idea of the situation, a prolonged situation of being in chaos, of being in a storm, of the wind being against us, of, of us not getting anywhere, this temptation to believe that we will not survive this, that we cannot endure this, that the, that. We're not gonna make it through this. You know, this temptation is, a, is one that is always present with us and maybe even more now than ever before. That we might just not get through this, whether it's our relationship or we might not just get through this, whether it's our mental health or we might just not get through this, whether or not it's our, our sense of community or our rhythms or our habits or our, you know, our church. We might not just get through this temptation. And Jesus's revelation to the disciples. Now, the other thing that's uh, helpful to keep in mind about the story is the context the story's in. This is always good to keep in mind no matter what the story is. The context the story's in is really important. So if you read through this whole entire chapter, you'll read first that John the Baptist has been beheaded. 
This is not only a big blow to the movement, but it's a big blow to like the emotional realities of Jesus. This is his cousin who he loved. This is his partner in ministry. I mean, this is like this is like hard personal emotional stuff. Some of the disciples of Jesus were first the disciples of John. This was hard, this was terrible hard news that was fear-inducing already just on the inside of them. And then you'll remember then uh, what happens is then they, they, they're trying to get away. They basically are in compassion fatigue trying to get away. Jesus is leading them off by themselves so they can be together and pray and grieve and just get some space. But that's not gonna happen because there's all these people who find him and come to him and are in need and want something, especially food. You remember the disciples, that's when the disciples say to Jesus, send them away so they can go get food somewhere else. And Jesus said this is this really cool thing. He goes, no, you feed them, you feed them. At the end of your resources, when you're tired, when you're emotionally exhausted, maybe there's something still God wants to do. Maybe there's something still God wants to demonstrate that there's more than enough, that there's a power greater than us, that there's something at the end of when our strength seems exhausted, that there's more still, that God has more, that we don't have to live in scarcity, that we don't have to live in like, we never have enough, we're not gonna make it through this, that God has a power greater than us, that God is at work in the world over, on top, sovereign over all the things we can't control and the things that we can't fear. And Jesus goes off to pray. He doesn't do anything the Father doesn't tell him to do. And I can't help but think to myself that when Jesus is talking to the Father, he sends the disciples on and, and, and to get to the other side. And he's spending time with the Father. I have a hunch that the Father's like, you know what the disciples need right now? They need to know that you're with them and that you're sovereign over what they're in. I mean, I just have this, I don't, I don't know how that works with Jesus and the Father. I just know that Jesus is like, I never do anything that the Father doesn't tell me to do. And the Father's like, Jesus is me, like, and we're one and we do what. And so there's this like parallel thing going on that when Jesus is just demonstrating who he is, he's demonstrating the will of the Father and the Father heart of God. And I just feel like when people are stuck in this wind against them and they're discouraged internally and they're sad and they're grieving and they feel like they're out of control, that that is the time where Jesus needs to reveal his sovereignty over the circumstances, that he's bigger than what is facing us, that he is with us in the midst of how we feel. There is something so pastoral about this move by Jesus. And I don't know, there's a part of me that just kind of is like, he's like, I feel like he's running on the water to catch up with where they are. Cause he's like, I wanted to spend some time by myself and I did and I'm rejuvenated and I am sad, but actually I wanna be sad with you. You are not alone. I will not leave you to face this by yourself. I'm catching up to where you are because you need to know that Jesus is with you even when it feels like something's against you, even when you're discouraged, even when some of your dreams died, even when you thought, what's gonna happen to me if John the Baptist is beheaded? I mean, all of these things are happening here and Jesus is right there. Isn't it awesome? Yeah. Right there. It's me, guys. Don't be afraid. Here's misconception number three, we can't do what Jesus does. And this is verse 28 and 29. And uh, you know, I, I, I said this uh, before, but Jesus has just shown the disciples even at the end of their capacity and at their fear of not having enough, right? That they can indeed participate in the work of God in the here and now. That they are invited to do what is supernatural in the natural world that they do have enough. If they can bring what it is that they have and with Jesus, an impartation with Jesus, offer 
that to him. So he has just invited them to participate, not to spectate. And I feel like one of the dangers that happens in our walking with Jesus is that our temptation, and I think I have a hunch that this is about kind of how we've designed church a lot of times, is sort of we've done this sort of spectator model, right? Where we just kind of sit back and we wanna watch Jesus. And then sometimes we'll be like, I'm aware of Jesus. But Jesus is always like, hey, come, do this with me. As a matter of fact, he said to the disciples before he was leaving another uh, part of the scripture, he says even greater things. And when they're marveling at what Jesus is doing, he's like, you're gonna do this and you're gonna do even greater things than this. I, Jesus is invitation. So Peter, because he's impulsive, Peter, you know, which we all hate and we all love. So we're all really hard on Peter because he's so impulsive. And then we also really love it because he's probably the most like us, right? Where we're like, we, we get Peter more than we get a lot of other things. But I think it's really fascinating. Jesus, uh, Peter says, if it's really you, tell me to come to you, which I think is, who made that up? That's like a really, let me step on this stormy sea. <laughs> like, what? But what he's done is he's learned. He's learned because if you read the whole scripture in context, he remembers the feeding of the 5,000 at the very least, just a few hours before this, where Jesus is like, you do have enough. You can feed these people. Bring me what you have. Let's begin with that. He's learned that Jesus is interested in participation, not just spectating. This is what it means to walk with Jesus. Jesus walks so that we can walk with him. And so the invitation is actually to participate so that we convince ourselves Jesus is an exception to humanity instead of what the scriptures are very clear about. And Jesus is still clear about today that Jesus is a prototype for humanity. I want you to be like this in the world. I want you to participate like this. I want you to exercise supernatural power. I want you to take what you have. And even though it doesn't look like enough, it be more than enough with leftovers besides. I want you to tap into a power greater than yourself. I want you to overcome those patterns and those systems that everybody says that you cannot overcome. I want you to disrupt systems of oppression. I wanna do something and I want you to do it because you're accessing participation with the power of God, which is a greater power than any other power in the universe, the power of love. And the final one is just simply this. And I think this might be the, the final one in terms of like what prevents us and what misconceptions we have that keep us afraid. And it's this, if we try and fail, we will be judged. Now, when you look up fear of failure on uh, you know, anything, you'll see the fear of failure is one of the top reasons why people don't try. We're afraid of failing. And this is part of what we love about Peter, right? Because Peter keeps trying. I feel like if Peter had a theme song, it could be that I get knocked down, but I get up again and they're never gonna keep me down. I get knocked down, right? Because he just keeps trying. He just keeps trying. I love that because actually that's the only way growth happens. So I was thinking back about this. I was thinking about when my son first walked. And I don't know if you can remember if you have a grandkid or a nephew or something like that. And, and, and the kid takes their first steps. And you're just like, you know, even in the days of the video camera, right? Where we had those like camcorders and you're just like, I gotta get this on camera. And the kid literally, I remember Zion, he's just my eldest son. He did have really big feet because he ended up being 6'4". But like, so he had like plank board. So it was easier for, he walked early because it was like easier to balance, I think. But um, I just remember he just took like a couple steps and we were like, he walked, he walked. My husband got the book, he wrote it down. Like, this is the date, this is how old he was. You know, this is like, and that's my boy, he walked. But he also fell, just for the record. 
right? He also fell and he fell hard. Like, I mean, he walked and he fell, but actually what I saw as a parent was that he walked. That's what I saw. I was like, he And I think I, so much, we have this like emphasis and I think it's really interesting when we read this scripture where we're always like, he sunk, Peter sunk. Like what an idiot, he sunk. Like what, and, you know, and, and you're like, but he walked on water. He's the only guy besides Jesus to actually walk on water. Like put it on your resume, Peter. You walked on water. I mean, you took Jesus up on the invitation, which by the way, that beautiful phrase of Jesus, like if it's really you, tell me to come. Jesus, immediately come. Come, come on, let's do this thing. Come on, walk on water, come on. Take like my power and, and overcome your fear and actually give it a go because what's the worst that could happen? You could fail. And then we go, this is the worst. That, what is the worst that could happen for Peter to try out walking on water? What is it? He could sink. And this is where we get to another immediately. This is what's so cool. He sinks. Because he gets, you know, he's like, he's like, ah, I'm walking on water. I can't do this. I'm not supposed to do this. Anyone ever heard of imposter syndrome? So I coach a lot of female speakers and almost every single time female speakers because of a whole bunch of cultural reasons and also like terrible, horrible theological like ideas that have seeped into women's uh, ethos when they're communicating, almost every time while they're communicating, they have this voice in their head saying like they shouldn't be doing it and they're doing it terribly. And if people found out and like, there's all this like, there's a script going on. All of us have this in some area of our life. Sometimes we have this spiritually, if, if these people knew who I really was, like it just goes on and on. It's an imposter syndrome. And the imposter syndrome is sort of, uh, kind of ups this ante of like failure. Like we're so afraid that we might try and not succeed as though there's only a pass or fail. And one of the things I love, and this is one of the misconceptions of the scripture is when Jesus says to him, and, and that's one of the other immediately, immediately he grabs Peter and pulls him back up. Immediately he grabs Peter and pulls him back up. Like, you know, a dad, I, I picture a dad in the deep end of a pool going like, I gotcha, I gotcha, I gotcha to his kid as a kid wants to jump right into the deep end for the first time. I got you, I got you, I got you. There is, God is with you as you try and fail. And then when Jesus says, oh, you have little faith, why did you doubt? This is how I, for my whole life, and so many times I've heard this preached this way, which I think is just another misconception about God and failure and trying. Jesus says, oh, you have little faith. There's only four other times he uses that word little faith. And um, do you remember what he told us could move mountains? A little faith, that's right. A mustard, like a tiny little faith was all you need, Jesus told his disciples, to move a mountain. It turns out a little faith is all you need to walk on water as well. Just a little faith. But when we hear Jesus say, oh, you have little faith, why did you doubt? We always hear it as a condemnation. I think that's fascinating. I really think that's fascinating because I think Jesus is genuinely asking the question because one of the things and the greatest ways that we learn is through experience. One of the greatest, actually, some would say one of the only true ways of learning is by actually trying and failing and trying and failing and trying and failing. And what I think, when I read that passage of scripture, oh, you have little faith, I hear it as like, you've got faith. You've got faith. Uh, when, like when my kid walked, I wasn't like, oh man, you're not there yet. I'm like, you walked, you tried, you risked it, you gave it a go. Like you have little faith. And then this question, why did you doubt? 
What if Jesus is asking Peter why he doubted as a means of curious debrief? Why did you doubt instead of condemnation? What if it's, let's explore that, Peter. What are you really afraid of? When do you take your eyes off me? What are you more afraid of? What, what, what is it that happened there? Let's go over that again. And you'll see in the pattern of Jesus's walking with his disciples, this pattern of what I think is one of the most incredible ways that Jesus teaches. And it's through this debrief. Jesus does not teach the disciples all the theory and then say, go do it. And then, and then that's it. And they pass or they fail. Like we do our education system. I think that's why we like apply all of these things to the ways of Jesus. Jesus is like, come follow me, try this stuff out. And then let's talk about it. Where did you see me? Where did you not see? Where did you take your eyes off me? Where did you doubt? Where's your fear? What did it bring up? What happened? Tell me all these things. And the number one way that Jesus teaches is by walking with Jesus and debriefing about what happened, how it happened, how did that happen? If ever you've walked through anybody through addiction, you'll know that relapse is one of the greatest teachers. It's one of the greatest. Let's talk about that. What was the trigger? How did that trigger happen? What were the, the things before the thing? Before you made that decision, what were the things that led up to that decision? Let's talk about that. Are there ways that we could change? Are there ways we could adapt? Are there ways that we could learn? Are there ways that we could, I mean, on and on this goes. And it's beautiful. And this is the pattern. So instead of pass or fail as a faith exercise, what if we tried and failed and then learned and then tried again? And then maybe we do a little bit differently next time, but actually we probably might fail again, but then we would debrief again and then we would learn again. And eventually we learn and learn new habits and new behaviors and new ways of being until like Peter, we go from this like embarrassing, impulsive, sinking guy to the rock of the church who becomes a martyr for Christ who learns to access a power greater than himself to stand up against persecution and to stand up in places of stormy situations and to actually not even fear death itself. And this, this is the invitation to discipleship. Isn't it great? So I wanna show you this picture just to finish with, and I'm gonna just pray for you. And remember to send in your questions if you have any, because we're gonna talk about it in a little bit. This picture is taken from, it was commissioned in the sermon notes. If you have a chance to look at this, it's all the information. I'm not gonna bore you with all the information. You can tell uh, what kind of learner I am. Uh, Cuvardis Domini is the name of the artwork. And so there's an apocryphal story. So the apocrypha are these books that are often in a Catholic Bible and they're not in the canon of scripture that we would have. So like, but they are actually these books that kind of give more information and different kind of information. So it's based on an apocrypha story of Peter. And I think it's a really fascinating story. So, you know, this isn't biblical, but we're using artwork here to kind of like emote and, and, and learn a little bit about Peter. But it's later on in Peter's life and he actually is fleeing Rome, okay? So, and this is like at a time where Rome is like burning Christians at the stake. Like this is bad news for the Christians. And so Peter is on his way out because he's just like, I'm out of here. And uh, as he's walking out, he encounters Jesus walking towards, okay? And he, then this is that picture you can see. So this is Peter on his way out and he has this encounter with Jesus walking towards Rome. And um, in Latin, Peter asks, Domini Cuvatis, which is, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replies, I'm going to Rome to be crucified again. And the scene as cataloged in the Apocrypha describes Peter who's fleeing Rome 
and actually turns himself around and follows Jesus instead. And the idea is that the first time this, the first time Jesus was crucified, not that he was crucified again, this is Apocrypha. This is just like, we're using our, our artistic imagination. Peter, remember he denies Christ three times and then he goes fishing, right? Like, and the whole thing's a bit of another try and fail. And then do you remember what happens then? God's like, oh yeah, he failed. I tried him out and he's not a good leader, so I'm out. You remember that, right? Where Peter's just like discarded because God's like, yeah, I can't handle people who try and fail. Oh no, that's right. Jesus seeks him out, right? Do you remember? And he restores him completely. He makes him breakfast. So my friend James, who helped with some of the research of this uh, message, he put in the notes, if you have a chance to look at this, I love this. He's like, your worst case scenario, if you try and fail, is that Jesus will come and cook you breakfast. <laughs> Isn't that great? I'll have breakfast, please. I'll need a few, right? And this idea of Peter, one more time, right? Every, the persecution gets hard. His fear rages, the stormy sea. Maybe discouragement sets in. Maybe this uncontrollable idea of like, I don't know how to control my chaos. And so his natural impulse is to flee. And he runs into either a vision of Jesus or Jesus himself saying, no, I'm going in this direction because I'm not afraid of death, because I'm not afraid of suffering, because I'm not afraid of these circumstances, because I have a demonstration of what love looks like to do. And you're invited to come with me. And Peter goes, oh yeah, follows Jesus and uh, actually ends up crucified himself, Peter. He's crucified as his uh, ending, as his witness to the power of love over death and fear. <sighs> Let's pray. Jesus, I pray right now that you would keep revealing who you are to us. I pray for my friends that they would hear these words. It's me, don't be afraid. I pray that you would reveal supernatural power for us in these natural situations of pain and fear. Would you come? Would your presence be clear? Dreams and visions and healings and signs and instructions and invitation. I pray you would rescue us from spectating and invite us to participate again. The spirit and the bride say, come, come. And may we keep coming, trying, failing, learning, growing, trying, failing, learning, growing as we walk with you. We pray it in your name, Jesus. Amen.